what we're doing right now is we're actually working our way through the book of Colossians this fall. And the book of Colossians is actually a letter that Paul writes to this young church that a, a young pastor started. And so Paul is writing to them and to help to really encourage them to uh, have a bigger view of Jesus, to have a bigger view of the Christian life than, than what they have. And so as he's writing to them, he's, he is really unpacking the gospel uh, of, of Jesus that's really provocative. And let me just explain that one sentence to you, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is provocative. You see, in in Paul's day, uh, the word gospel was a very popular word. It was connected to emperors and kings. It was a, a word that would be as familiar to us as inauguration or as uh, elections, as, as midterms. It is very, a very common word, but it's connected to the, the kings and the emperors and the politics of that day. And if you would, uh, very specifically, like it was attached to Roman emperors in a way that it would be, be known as uh, the gospel of Caesar. And if you're ro- walking into a Roman city like Colossae or Thessalonica, Thessalonica or uh, Philippi or Rome, you would, as you would walk in, there would be an arch in, by, over the gates, and you'd be walking in, and on the arches you would see a bust, a, a an image, a uh, a bust of the the emperor's head, or you see an entire statue of the Ro- Ro- Roman emperor, and you would also see above and below, or beside or behind, you would see uh, trees that are very, being very fruitful, and you're seeing the next scene would be where harvesters are collecting such fruits. And so these were, in fact, like the billboards of the Roman day. And these billboards are saying that the good news of Caesar, the gospel of Caesar, is that if Rome is your ruler, if Caesar reigns over you, your life will be fruitful. Your life would have an abundant harvest. And if we look at Colossians, and this is going back like two weeks ago, Paul is actually using a lot of the same imagery to describe life with God through Jesus Christ. He's using the same imagery to describe the gospel of Jesus. Like, for example, um, verse 10, this isn't the, the, one of the verses we're looking at today, but it's one that we looked at a few weeks ago. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so right there we're seeing that life with God, uh, life through Jesus brings about a wonderful uh, fruitfulness in our life. And then it, today... Like verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And so the, the contrast that Paul is drawing between the gospel of Caesar and the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is striking. It's very apparent to everyone who would read this letter. And then he also goes on to say that Jesus is the one who has created all things. And so Paul is is uh, telling the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that he is defying the, the Roman gospel. And it's actually for that reason that he died. And, and Paul and Silas were known for this gospel, and this is what is said about them in Acts 17 as they were in the city of Thessalonica, that these two men, that Paul and Silas, are described as turning the world upside down, acting against the, the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king named Jesus. And so the point that I want to draw out for you today is that 
This is a, a subversive gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is subversive. It turns things upside down. And Paul is competing for the imaginations of the Colossian Christians so that they would actually have their lives transformed and changed by Jesus Christ. So that they wouldn't turn back to their Jewish roots or their Greek philosophy or even the, the uh, cultish experiences that they had. But that they would actually uh, remain faithful to Jesus. And so that is the scene and the backdrop for these next uh, nine verses that we come to today. So let's look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. And uh, you can follow along on, on the words projected on the wall or in your worship guide. Here's, let's read God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which, was, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that at this time your word would work in our hearts, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, that you would help us to take whatever distractions, whatever burdens, whatever emotions are in our life, that we would actually receive your word through those things as opposed to them being obstacles and barriers between uh, our life and you. So, Father, we ask in this time that you would work in our hearts, that we would know you more dearly and clearly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So songs have a, the power to really shape a generation. They have the power to stick in our hearts. They, they have the power to stick in our, in our minds. And it just takes one quick verse. And all of a sudden, we perhaps remember the rest of the line or we, we remember the entire song. Like consider, consider a few examples. Whoa, we're halfway there. Whoa, we're living on a prayer. Perhaps you know uh, Bon Jovi. Or here's another song. I stay out too late, got nothing in my brain. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, Taylor Swift. Yes, I'm found out. So the, the verses that we're looking at today in Colossians have that same uh, power to stick in our mind, to stick in our hearts. And that's actually because uh, this is the, the verses we're looking at, verses 15 through 23, the, the scholars and commentators, they, they debate whether or not it's actually a song, a hymn about Jesus Christ, or it's a poem. But the truth is that poems and songs together have the power to stick in our hearts, stick in our minds in a way that just really shape our imagination. Like, they have that power. 
And, and God's word actually needs to do the same thing. God's word has power like that, but it's an even greater power because it is God's words. It's God's words. And so we, uh, as we're coming to this text, we, we need God's word. We need this poem. We need this song to shape our entire life. We, we needs to shape our imaginations. And the, the, the entire idea behind these verses is that Jesus is more than we ever expected. Jesus is greater than anything we would imagine. Jesus is actually the man, Jesus as a man, he did more for you than die for your sins. Jesus did more for you than die for your sins. That's what these verses are talking about. Jesus is greater than just being your Savior and our Savior. And so we need to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And so as Paul is going through these verses and he's telling us about Jesus Christ, he is using, he is celebrating a a very deep, a rich, a robust understanding of Jesus. It's what theologians theologians would call a Christology. A very, Paul has a very rich Christology, and Christology just simply means study of Christ. And so today we're embarking and undertaking a, a, a and we're diving into Christology, and to, we need to have a very deep, rich, robust Christology, Christology, just like Paul has here. And every single time Paul mentions Jesus, he is celebrating his work. Every single time he thinks about the person of Jesus Christ, he thinks about what Jesus did. And so what we see is that we cannot disconnect Jesus from who he is as a person and what he does. So whenever you think about Jesus, you have to think about his teaching. Whenever you think about his teaching, you have to think about his death upon the cross. Whenever you think about creation, you need to think about Jesus as the one who holds it all together. So these verses, we see a remarkable picture of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who created all things, Jesus is the one who sustains all things, and Jesus is the one who redeems all things. That's an outline for us, that Jesus creates all things, that Jesus sustains all things and redeems all things. And so with that outline, let's dive into this uh, today. And so the first thing that, as we dive into this text, like the big picture, the big question in our minds is, what do we learn about Jesus? And that's the big question that we, need, that we have in our minds, and I've already told you, created, sustained, redeemed. Uh, and so have that in your mind as we go through this. And how I want to go through this text is really just like go nice and slow, beginning to end, and to really pull out what we learn about Jesus. And so the first thing, as all things are created by Christ, How do we see this in this text? Verse 15. Uh, He is the image of the invisible God. Let me just focus on that clause first. See, the thing that we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus makes God visible. And like we read in our call call to worship in Hebrews, Jesus is the revelation of God. Here's Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, You see, God's nature and his character and his person are perfectly revealed to us through Jesus. So what this means is is that because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what this means for us is that if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. That's If you want to know God, just look to Jesus. That's where Paul starts. But then he goes on that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, some have read this verse to read that Jesus was 
the first creation. And let me just think about that because there are two significant problems with that idea that Jesus is the first creature of all creation. One is, is this, like if you just read down to verse 19, uh, in verse 19 we read that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so the, the idea that Paul has right there is that the entire uh, d- divinity resided in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is God. So that's one problem. Jesus is God. To say that Jesus is the first created creature contradicts that entire idea that Scripture teaches. The second problem is with the idea that Jesus is the first creature is that it actually fails to understand how Colossians, how the Colossians would hear and receive this claim here. That the Colossians, when they would read the firstborn of all creation, they would understand that firstborn is language of inheritance. It's language of privilege. And in fact, if you uh, heard this word from a Jewish background, you would understand that this word of firstborn had connotations of inheritance. Because in the Old Testament, the word firstborn is used 130 times. And it's clear that like Israel is, is God's firstborn. It's the idea that, uh, that Israel is the, is the prized, the, the privileged creation of God. And so it, like to be called the firstborn of all creation or to be called the firstborn period indicates that you have a special place in God's heart. And so Jesus, as the firstborn of all creation, he is the one who is privileged. He is the one who inherits all things. He is the one who has power over all things. And that is what the Colossians, that's how the Colossians would receive this. But if you even go on to read the next verse, we understand more deeply what Paul is saying about Jesus. So looking at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The picture that we have from verse 16 is that Jesus is the one through whom everything was created. So, like, there's the, the, the question, how could part of creation be the instrument through which other creation happens? What we, the picture that we have is that Jesus is really above all things. He's the one who has power over all things because he is the creator. And because he is the creator, he is the one who has the privilege and the honor and the respect that comes with it. And that is what Paul is saying. He rules over everything. He is the owner of the entire universe. And when Paul says all things, he means all things. Like he unpacks that even for us. Because Jesus, and the picture that that Paul gives us in verse 16, is that Jesus rules over heaven and everything there. He rules over earth and everything there. He rules over the invisible realm. He rules over the visible realm. He rules over all things, even kings and authorities. So the picture that Paul gives us is that Jesus rules over angels and demons and kings and dictators and presidents. He rules over our lives, our work, our sexuality, our finances. He rules over everything, every place, and every sphere of life. Jesus rules over all things. No one in heaven or earth 
in the entire universe, whether visible or invisible, is greater than Jesus. That is the claim Paul is making for us today. All things are created by Christ. And all things are sustained by Christ. So, looking into the next verse, that all things, that Jesus is the one who holds all these things together. In Him, all things are held together. So, the, the idea of creation is permanently established in Him. He sustains everything. He keeps everything going. And again, just returning to our call to worship, in Hebrews 1.3, we read that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So if Jesus would stop holding everything together, everything would spiral out of control. Everything would disintegrate. Everything would simply cease. Jesus is the one who sustains everything. He's the one who keeps everything going. Everything depends on him. And so Paul uh, in Acts 17 said that in him we live and move and have our being. That we are completely dependent upon God in all of life because he is the one who not only created it, he is the one who sustains all of life. And so the reality of these two claims that Jesus is the creator and Jesus, Jesus is our sustainer means that we are in his debt. Jesus sustains our lives every moment. He is the one who gives us life, and he's also the one who gives us breath. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here, and this is a massive picture. It is a startling picture because the reality is this is striking news that Jesus is the one who keeps everything going together. It's not just the laws of science. It's not just the laws of physics or anything like that. Jesus is the one who keeps everything going and so if you are here today and you're a skeptic, like this, you understand how this strikes at a secular understanding of the world. But perhaps you have grown up in the church. And this may be even startling to you as well. And the reason why it would be startling is because we as American Christians have a sort of a, an abbreviated gospel. In our abbreviated gospel, it's, it's not wrong, it's really incomplete. This abbreviated gospel says we are sinners and Jesus rescues us. And that's true, friends. We are sinners. Jesus is the one who rescues us, but that's not the entire news of God's word. That is not the, the full gospel, the full good news. Because the, that abbreviated gospel gives us the impression that following Jesus is actually a private thing. It's something that is individualistic. It, but the reality is that following Jesus is a public thing. It is something that, is, that involves our community, that involves our work, that involves every sphere of our life. And so this abbreviated gospel reduces salvation to really simply escaping the evil physical world to have life with God in a spiritual heaven. So this abbreviated gospel says that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good. It's, it's a form of dualism, actually. But the gospel is larger, that, larger, larger than that. And actually, the gospel starts in the very beginning of Scripture. It starts in creation. That's where the good news starts. And this is one reason why today we're seeing all creatures of our God and King. It's one reason why we are like thinking about creation very specifically. And so a very practical consideration for us, a very practical question that every single one of us needs to ask 
is, do we enjoy God's creation? Do we enjoy God's creation? You see, we're meant to. We are meant to enjoy God's creation. But the, the problem is, is that we take our enjoyment of God's creation and we elevate our joy to an unhealthy degree. We take the good things we're meant to, to enjoy and make them into an ultimate thing. And here's an illustration of this. And that really gets at even some of the, the, the tension that may be there. Because we can take good things and put them into the place, to the points of ultimacy in our life, and that means we worship them, where our lives are really defined by those things. So here's the illustration. And one of the things that American Christians have loudly denounced in our entire history in this country has been alcohol and beer. But some church history, history fun facts. St. Patrick, when he went to Ireland on his church planning journey, he took the brewmaster, his brewmaster, McCon, with him. Then later, uh, an Irish nun, uh, uh, she cared for lepers by giving them baths. And leprosy is that skin disease that would actually numb what you feel. And so she would be giving them baths to care for them. And she was known to say that how she wished this bath water would be beer so that they would be able to enjoy this moment because they're numbed to it. And then later, John Calvin, uh, known for a variety of things. But one thing that John Calvin asked for in his pastoral compensation was 250 gallons of wine so he could share it with his church. The, the, the illustrations I'm giving right there is that here's this good thing that we're told in Scripture that God intends to be good for us, but like wine and beer, and it's created by God. It's something for us to enjoy, but we see the devastating effects of, of alcohol alcoholism when we abuse and exploit alcohol to its to it to an incredible degree and the point that i want us to see is that everything around us is made for our joy we are meant to enjoy god's creation and when we actually enjoy god's creation we actually glorify him because he is for our joy and our good and so all of life is meant to be interesting Everything in life is meant to be interesting. So we're meant to enjoy God's creation. And when we do that, we glorify him. And like as we think about Jesus is the one who is the creator of the world, when we enjoy it, we honor the fact that he created a good world. And when we uh, enjoy God's creation, we are actually saying that, hey, he's the one who sustains things. He's the one who keeps everything going. But the realities of just the illustration I gave, the realities of alcoholism is just one picture of how we, in Paul's words, are alienated from God and hostile in minds. We take God's good creation, we abuse it, we exploit it, we corrupt it, we vandalize it in our sin. That is what we do. And this is actually why we need a redeemer. And, and if you notice Paul's logic, that's exactly where he goes. He goes on to say that he is the head of the church. And that's where he goes in verse 18. This is our third idea, that Jesus is the one who redeems all things, that all things are redeemed by Christ. So Paul talks about the church here. He's not just narrowly focusing on just one particular local church. He's actually thinking about the global church that transcends space, that transcends time. He thinks about the, all those who are actually in God's sight now, 
worshiping him and all Christians across all time worshiping him. So he is thinking about this global church that transcends ethnic boundaries and time. He's thinking about the entire family of God through that Jesus rescued through his resurrection. And so the reality is that we, and I said this earlier, we cannot disconnect Jesus from what he does. That Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. He defeated death for us through his resurrection. And he is now seated at the right hand of God ruling over the world. That is the picture that we have of Jesus in Scripture. And so Jesus died for us. And as Jesus died for us upon the cross, that alienation was put to death. Jesus reconciled us to God. Jesus brought us children of wrath, is what Paul calls, calls us elsewhere. And he makes us into children of God. So friends, if you are now God's son because of Christ, you, you are now God's daughter because of Christ. Jesus rescued you. Jesus reconciled you. So in other words, Jesus is the one who brings you life with God. But life with God involves more than just the forgiveness of sins. Look again at verse 20 here in our, in our text. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. So Jesus reconciled all things to himself. And what so, so what's Paul getting at when he says this? What is this view of all things? Well, here's um, British writer Christopher Wright, an uh, incredible biblical scholar. Christopher Wright says this, Paul comprehensively and repeatedly includes all things, not only in what God created through Christ, but what he plans to redeem through Christ. It is clear that all things means the whole created order. Because of that plan of cosmic redemption, the whole of creation can look forward to the future as a time of liberation and freedom from frustration. You see, the biblical story is that God created this world and it's part of his, his reign. It's part of his kingdom. God is meant to rule over all things. And this is his creation. This is his, his world. So he sends his son Jesus to love this world and to love us and to bring us back to God, to rescue us, to redeem us. That is literally what redeem means, to bring us back or to buy back, to bring us back to himself. And so he, what God is doing in this world through Jesus is he is renewing and redeeming all of creation. That is the picture that Paul has in these verses. But as you and I all know, that has not fully happened yet. We can look all around us in the world and we see brokenness, we see war, we see violence, we see abuse, we see corruption, we see all sorts of different signs of sin in our world, different signs of vandalism in our world. But Paul is thinking about this on a very cosmic level. Like he goes on in verse 23, he says, The gospel has been proclaimed in all heavens. The gospel has been proclaimed even to you. How could Paul say that 2,000 years ago when we didn't live? See, Paul has the entirety of time in view here. Paul is thinking about the day, about, he's really thinking about the entirety of history. 
And that enables him to say that Jesus is rescuing and redeeming and renewing all things to himself, including our, our own lives. And so Paul sees the end of our stories. He sees the, the end of history in view. It's that perspective that enables Paul to say the gospel has, has been proclaimed to all things, period. And so the picture, just to make sure this is very clear, Paul has a cosmic redemption in view. Paul has in mind that Jesus is rescuing and redeeming everything that God created. Everything that Jesus created is being brought back into the proper place, back into God's kingdom where Jesus rules over all things. And so this this reality of God's cosmic redemption shapes our lives in a, in a variety of ways. One way that shapes us is that we are actually saved by God. We are rescued by Jesus, but we're not taken out of this world. We're actually saved by God for this world. Jesus lives in the world, leaves us in the world, and changes our lives while we remain here where God works in our lives. It's his intention that we live as part of this creation as he, that he redeemed, that he rescued, and he's working in our hearts, and he's working in our lives. And as I've said a few times already, examples abound of ways that this world is in rebellion against God of ways that we abuse, exploit, and corrupt this world. And that's because that this world is not governed by Christ in, in Jesus' fullness today. And so that this world is governed by power, other powers and principalities and, rule, and rulers, whether they be visible or invisible. And so God's good creation, because of that, is vandalized and needs redemption. But here's... Um, an example of how this begins to come to, uh, come to bear on our lives. And this example is not a political example. It is a theological example, and I hope that is clear by the end of it. Here's an example. It's no secret that we live in a very racially charged society today, that really August 2014 uh, may have be, perhaps be the defining moment for uh, this decade here in America, and that is when uh, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. And it was that in that moment that the chorus, Black Lives Matter, became not only just a hashtag on Twitter, it became part of our cultural language. It became something that we see on the news. It becomes something that we see on t-shirts and elsewhere. And I recognize that Black Lives Matter is an activist and political organization, but the phrase Black Lives Matter is what I want to focus on for this illustration. It is a beautiful and deeply theological statement. And I thought of this this week when I was listening to a podcast. It was an interview between um, uh, two writers. And Tyler Burns was the was a person asking the questions. And, and he's a black man. And he said this, I had been ashamed of the way God made me. I was ashamed of the way God created me. I was ashamed of my blackness. But the Black Lives Matter was more dignifying than the theology than I've learned. People could not understand why I was taken up with this movement. But at its core was the idea that I matter to God. 
This statement matters within our story as white American Christians because within the white American Christian story, we actually said that black lives were accursed. That that was something that was said over and over and over again. And the reality is that that is a blatant, horrific lie and injustice. See, God is making for himself a picture. God is making for himself a family that is multi-ethnic, where people come to God, that have life with God, and they are brown, Hispanic, native, white, black, Asian, because every single person matters to God. And that is a picture of Jesus' cosmic redemption. It is where Jesus saves us as individuals, yes, but he overcomes our history. He overcomes our politics. He overcomes everything that separates us from one another and from the world that he is creating. Jesus is the one who redeems and rescues all things to himself, and he is greater than everything that would oppose him. That's a picture of Jesus' cosmic redemption. He rescues much, 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 much more than merely our souls. He rescues all things. You see, God created you with joy. God took pleasure when he created you. And he wants to see every aspect of your life defined by Jesus' reconciliation. He wants to see every part of your life defined by what he did upon the cross. And that was more than just dying for your sins. He is bringing all things under his reign. And so God cares about every part of his creation. He cares about you and every other aspect. Every aspect, every place, every sphere of his creation. He cares about people, places, and things. Do our lives reflect that? Do our lives reflect that God cares about people, places, and things? Do our lives reflect that Christ created, sustained, and redeemed all things? Imagine, if you would, if Christians were the ones to affirm black dignity and value and not political activists. Imagine if Christians celebrated creation without abusing or exploiting it like alcoholism. Imagine if Christians saw their work, and whether it be, for lack of better words, secular or sacred, but imagine if Christians saw their work as integral to God's redemptive work in this world. And, if, and that involves the question, what does God have to do with my studies? What does God have to do with psychology or education or science or Whatever. Like, what does Jesus have to do with all these things? Friends, the church is not a container for our souls until we get to heaven. The church is not just an hour on Sunday mornings, but the church is actually the the living demonstration of God's intentions for humanity and for the whole creation. Let me say that again. The church is the living demonstration of God's intention for the whole creation. And if you experience God's love, then your life must be marked by God's love for all things. Our imaginations need to be caught up in God's intentions for this world. And we need need to be able to imagine ways to use our power and our privilege for love. We need to use our privilege to demonstrate God's kindness to others, and we need to give our entire lives to Jesus. So in other words, what we need to do with our lives is to make the invisible Jesus visible. That is the calling upon this text in our life. 
And it's the reality that if we know God's love, then, our, then his love for all things is going to shape everything that we think, say, and do. Let's pray.